Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. I'm honored to welcome our guest today, Joanna Barron, who is the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Her stunning background and expertise in law and defending freedom in public opinion is absolutely crucial in our nation. Joanna, thanks for taking the time to educate our viewers today. Great to be with you, Leon. Now, you are a part of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And uh, tell me a little bit about that. What is that? Yeah, so we're a legal charity, and our mandate is to protect and defend constitutional liberties in courts of law and public opinion. So that means we do a fair amount of public interest litigation, but we also do educational projects, um, such as a free course that I've spoken to you guys about previously. Um, but the bulk of what we do is we sue the government when they violate your rights. Tell me a little bit about your challenge for a judicial review of the Emergency Act and maybe fill us in on what is a judicial review. Yeah, so judicial review is just simply the notion that judges can have uh, a set of eyeballs on either administrative actions, so administrative tribunals, or in this case, executive actions. So if the government takes a specified action, a judge will go in and review whether it was compliant with the laws of the country. Okay, so are you guys bringing one? So we are. So we have uh, initiated a judicial review uh, just on Tuesday evening of the Prime Minister's invocation, which was last Monday, February 14th, of the Emergencies Act. Um, and we say that it's unconstitutional and that on the basic statutory framework of the Emergencies Act, the preconditions for declaring a national emergency were not met. So in this judicial uh, review, what are you hoping to get out of it? I mean, the Emergency Act has been dropped. What will it do for us if you win in this area? Yeah, so a few things. First of all, even though the Prime Minister has revoked the Emergencies Act as of yesterday, February 23rd, it still was in place for nine days and actions were taken pursuant to it. People were arrested, people's financial uh, information and accounts have been frozen, which by the way, at his press conference confirming the revocation of the act, the PM also made clear that those enforcement actions will continue. Um, so it already was in place. Once the prime minister invokes it, it's immediately triggered even before parliament assents to it, which of course they did. Uh, the second reason though, which is probably more important, is that this is the very first time in our country's history that the Emergencies Act has been invoked. Of course, it replaced uh, an earlier version called the War Measures Act, which was invoked during World War I, World War II, and during the FLQ crisis in 1970, and was reused to justify very serious infringements of Canadians' rights, such as internment of Japanese uh, Canadians, internment of Italian Canadians um, during, during the Second World War, as well as extensive uh, intrusions into privacy in the years following 1970. Um, but this version, the Emergencies Act, has never been invoked before. So a judge needs to go in and look at whatever evidence the government had at the time that it invoked it, how it justified it, and whether indeed it was justified. And that will give us a lot more scope, including will give the government scope of whether this was a proper action. So we, you want a precedent set. Exactly. 
Exactly. This is a historic invocation. Um, and we feel that when the government takes a bold draconian move like this, this is why we have the court system in place um, to say, you know, you were out of bounds. And by the way, here's, here's our reasoning for why. And that will help the government to act in a way that respects our charter rights in the future. If we don't do this, what should Canadians be concerned about when it comes to the Emergencies Act? Yeah, I think many Canadians and, and, you know, we've been in touch with many Canadians are very concerned that this was a protest that was, first of all, almost entirely nonviolent. Um, this is a protest that, uh, you know, raised legitimate questions, some legitimate, you know, so there were different elements of the protest. But the important thing is that it was nonviolent and the aspects that constituted the strongest argument for a national uh, emergency, such as border blockades, especially in Windsor, which is a major tr trade artery. That was already cleared under regular police powers prior to the prime minister's invocation of the act. So I think Canadians would be fair to ask um, if a protest that is nonviolent, that has aspects that the police have shown the most serious aspects of which can be dealt with under normal police operations, when else is this government going to feel justified in invoking these extraordinary measures, um, which give them license to do things that we've never seen before in Canadian history, like freeze accounts and share financial information without a warrant? Yeah, if people... You know, back when it was just a freedom convoy and people were giving $50, $60 to help them just to do their, their you know, to use their rights and then afterwards to make that illegal. Um, that's a real reach, isn't it? it? It certainly is. And I want to be clear that our legal challenge has no affiliation with the protesters. We take no position on the convoy. Right. Um, however, I understand that the House of Commons Finance Committee heard evidence this week um, from officials with CRA and with the RCMP, and those officials confirmed that on the law as it's written, which says, which makes it an offense to directly or indirectly support anybody in connection with an illegal assembly, so a protest, including a peaceful protest, that that person could be uh, liable to have their accounts frozen, their information reported to the RCMP, and of course, the financial institutions are shielded from any civil liability, even for a $20 donation. Now, I should be clear that the RCMP has said that they are not targeting those individuals. I've heard different things that have been difficult to confirm that as of now, they're targeting organizers, you know, sort of most prominent influencers. But as a country that considers ourselves governed by the rule of law, we shouldn't take any comfort in that. Because if it's just a matter of discretion of the RCMP to say we have limited resources, let's focus on, you know, these more prominent organizers, the law as written does make many Canadians who donated, particularly when the convoy was entirely peaceful before the so-called occupation of Ottawa took place, before the blockades took place, um, that, that now they have to fear for their financial safety. You know, in, in this uh, situation, it's been interesting to watch the public. And there are those who are just so outspoken about our freedoms uh, then there's a group that are totally with the Prime Minister. And uh, then there are those who just want 
let's just keep our head low and let's not do anything. This is all going to go away. What do you think about the responsibility of citizenship? Can you speak to that for a few minutes? Yeah, I think that we preserve our identity as a free country, as a country governed by the rule of law, by awareness and vigilance on the part of our citizens. I will say, and I'm going to have an op-ed about this in the coming days, one of the most disturbing phenomena of this whole uh, past several weeks for me as executive director of a legal charity that is, uh, of course, mounting a challenge to the, you know, the legal limits and interpretation and application of the Emergencies Act, the scope of executive power, so not to do with the protests at all, not supporting them, not affiliated with them. But I've gotten many, many emails. We've probably gotten hundreds of emails over the weekend from concerned Canadians who would like to support uh, our challenge, um, who think that holding the government to account is, first of all, it's constitutionally guaranteed, this is how things should work, um, but they've asked the question, does this put me at risk of having my accounts frozen? I have a family to support, et cetera. The answer is no. However, um, the legislation and sort of the way that it was brought in in a sudden way, the way that it's already, there's a lot of confusion, about how these laws are going to be enforced. I, I can't say that it's totally irrational to ask the question. And I'm happy to say that, yes, you can still donate to a registered charity, et cetera. But the fact that in Canada in 2022, we even have to ask this question, does donating to a legal charity put me at risk of having my accounts frozen um, is a very frightening state of affairs. And I would just urge all Canadians to become aware of what the law is, become aware of what your rights are, and don't fall prey to the chilling effect, which is that the government delineates some perimeter of enforcement, but then we make it, we, we silence ourselves even further by being chilled far beyond that lawfully defined perimeter, which to be clear, I think the law as written is unconstitutional and overbroad, um, but people are going even further because as you say, they're scared. So if you've got a legal charity, I mean, that's the government has given it um, that status, then you're saying we're totally fine to give to a legal charity. And if it's <clears throat> no longer illegal, it, it should be up to the government to do something about it. Yes. So we pursue ac activities taken in furtherance of a valid charitable purpose. Uh, we have no association with the protests. However, there's just been this sort of uh, cloud of fear that has fallen upon this whole topic in Canada. And it's been extraordinary. You know, these are private companies, on the other hand, that have been involved in this, but the doxing of private information of individuals who donated money to the convoy, uh, the publication of those, those details um, is really a shameful moment for our country. Can you see any other reason for this than just to strike fear? in people and make them step back when it comes to disagreeing with whatever's happening in the government? Yeah, well, on the part, on the, in the case of the private companies, they were hacked and I, I take, you know, no position on what that was about or how that happened or if there was any purpose of it. But we certainly have been in a climate where to disagree is to put yourself at risk of being socially ostracized or canceled. Um, and the government was dousing the flames in a way that I think was extraordinarily uh, irresponsible. For example, Minister Lametti, 
went on uh, television with Evan Solomon and said something like, I, I'm paraphrasing, but only a bit. If you donated money to a pro-Trump group, he did use that phrase, you should be afraid. Um, what was with that? I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, this is just smearing, tarring, and feathering. Uh, I don't think it's it's it should be clear at this point that it's a total mischaracterization um, to depict the whole convoy as pro-Trump people. Uh, I think that's just you know basically ideological warfare. You know, for the average Canadian, I mean, Joanna, you work in this every day, and so. But to the average Canadian, we still don't understand our rights and then how can the courts keep our rights or do they, can they really set aside our rights for the most, the tiniest issues? Like what really is, you know, can you, can you put that into kind of a concise paragraph? Like, do we still have rights when, when there's an emergency act? So, yes. So I will say, I think sort of the question behind the question is that over the last two years of this pandemic, we have seen unprecedented levels of deference of the judiciary um, to decisions of elected officials. And the Canadian Constitution Foundation has been involved in numerous pieces of litigation relating to the pandemic, right to protest, right to religious worship, um, right to travel in and out of the country, particularly to care for loved ones. And it's been disheartening at times. Um, it has been very difficult to get sort of any sort of clear-eyed recognition of rights from judges. And I think part of that is not their fault. It's because these government decisions are based on the government's public health expert and their opinions. And judges are not epidemiologists, right? So they will be they will be more likely to say this is a decision of public health. The court doesn't have the ability or the expertise to wade into these debates. So we're just going to say this is justified under Section 1, which is the rights limitation clause, which says your rights can be violated only in so far as it's justified in a free and open democracy. And there's a famous test called Oaks, which looks at proportionality, which looks at minimal impairment. And so the deference has been unprecedented. That's why uh, commentators like Rex Murphy has said COVID-19 has been uh, the biggest get out of jail free card the government has ever set, had. Um, and there's truth to that, uh, although we still think it's worthwhile to keep nipping at the heels of the government and hold them to account. And we have had some small victories. However, with this challenge, the Emergencies Act, we think it's truly different because it does not involve public health expertise. It involves, first of all, the basic legal, legal predicates of the act which maybe we can talk about after this, because there's a bunch of requirements of the act that it says these must be met prior to triggering a national emergency. And second of all, looking at whether those requirements were met requires judges to look at existing laws in Canada, criminal code provisions, police powers, and judges certainly are experts in that domain. So I don't expect we'll see the same type of shirking from enforcing rights as we have seen throughout the pandemic. So to go back to something that you said earlier, so if judges don't want to deal with uh, this is worthy of being a true emergency and just the government decides that, then 
yeah, there is no, where do we go next to say, that's, that's ridiculous um, that you would, you know, put the emergency act in for, like you said, for peaceful disagreement. Yeah. Um, so then the, see what I'm hearing you say is the judges don't want to touch this. So then all the cases that are coming before them, isn't this a really big issue? Like, is this really an emergency? You'd think the judges would have to dive into that, bring in expert witnesses, talk about that, but you're saying they won't. In the case of COVID litigation, they don't want to get into public health evidence because they're not scientific experts. In right. this present case, the Emergencies Act, I think they will want to get into it because first okay. of all, they'll recognize that it's going to set a historic precedent. And second of all, they have extensive expertise in the existing criminal laws of Canada, police powers. So I think we'll see a more muscular judicial stance in this present case. I've heard a few comments made about the Bill of Rights being more powerful uh, than our charter. Is there anything there or what do they mean by that? Well, what they might mean is that the Canadian Bill of Rights, which was incorporated sort of pursuant to the UK Bill of Rights in our constitutional history, it doesn't have a limitations clause like section one where judges can say, okay, there was a violation, um, but it was justified under this sort of overarching objective of the law, which, which violated the right. Um, and the Bill of Rights sort of sets out more absolute rights. Um, having said that, you will find uh, a very difficult time getting much attention from a judge arguing the Canadian Bill of Rights. Um, it's much more de rigueur to litigate under the charter. Okay. Wow. So are there any other um, cases that you guys are working on at bringing? Talk to me about, a little bit about that other than this one, which is a very important one. Yeah, sure. So we have, I think, a really important charter case, which goes to the right to equal treatment under the law, Section 15, out in British Columbia. Um, so British Columbia, in its vaccine passport program, initially announced that there would be no medical exemptions to the requirement to use a vaccine passport. And they later amended it to say that on certain uh, grounds, so anaphylaxis and pericarditis, you could be eligible for a deferral but you would have to apply to public health on a case-by-case -case basis for the deferral, meaning each time an individual wanted to go to a restaurant, go to a museum, they would have to contact public health and wait for a reply. And this is obviously unfair, unworkable. And so the CCF has brought an urgent petition before the BC government, along with several co-applicants. One is a teenage girl who developed pericarditis following her first dose of the Pfizer vaccine, and so is medically unable to be fully vaccinated. Another is a woman who developed brachial neurosis, so a serious neuro neurological disease after her first dose. Um, and in that case, her condition is not even recognized, so she's not eligible for a deferral or an exemption at all. And look, uh, in Ontario and Quebec, uh, other provinces, I believe Alberta and Manitoba as well, even though those provinces have, have adopted vaccine passports, they also have created limited medical exemptions. And I think in a constitutional democracy, we have to accommodate those of us who are disabled, who are medically unable to be vaccinated. Um, these are rare cases, but they do come up. And it's simply cruel to say to a 13-year-old girl, 
who has pericarditis, who, who wanted to be vaccinated, but who was unable to be vaccinated, um, that she cannot go to a restaurant with her family, go to the museum, go to the movies. Um, and certainly the experience in the other provinces has shown that the BC government could have accommodated these individuals. When you, as a lawyer, when you take a look at the last couple of years, probably one of the things that concerns me the most is the massive censorship that is going on. How can we deal with that? Yeah, so my position on this may be disappointing to you for the most part when people talk about online censorship, although I agree it's a phenomenon, that is mostly controlled by big tech, right? Google, Facebook, um, and I am not of the viewpoint that the government should go in and regulate big tech. I think that if a critical mass of citizens learns that these news, these platforms are censoring, that they're presenting a biased view of the world, um, they are entirely free to go and create or engage in alternative platforms. Um, and so if you do feel like you're in a, a echo chamber, I commend that to you. Um, but I don't want to go down the road of I, I certainly personally, as a classical liberal, I don't trust the government's hand. And that would be the only alternative. Unfortunately, we don't have great options in, in the current climate. So you really are, and you're looking at this, you really see as big tech is the one censoring. We don't see any, you don't think there's any interference from government? Well, they've, they certainly are attempting to. So we have Bill C-10, the Algorithmic Transparency Act. We have Bill C-11, which is proposing to create a civil remedy for hate speech and would require platforms to report hate speech. Um, and we're very opposed to those measures. We think it will create a massive chill effect to say to Facebook, anything that looks like hate speech, you have to flag it and report it to CSIS within 24 hours. The fines are up to $5 million. So the platforms are gonna take this very seriously. And so we vigorously oppose, um, but people who say, don't you think we should regulate big tech? I say, well, look at what they, how, how they're trying to go about it and ask yourself if that's an improvement. I don't think so. One of the things I've noticed is that there seems to be this need across our nation for education. It's like, I think the average Canadian, when I speak with them, seems to feel like everything's fine, we're gonna be protected, Canada is secure, uh, and so we go about our life and, and it's like no one even understands the laws, the politics, what, how government even runs, their rights, you know, they talk about it, but most of them don't really know about it. And I heard that you guys were doing online training for free, is that true? Yes. So you can go to this theccf.ca and we'll, we are releasing, should be released by now, by the time this airs, a free constitutional law course that takes you through all of your rights under the constitution. It's led by some of the you know, most esteemed academics, lawyers from across the country. Wow. Um, it has little quizzes so you can mark your progress um, and you will get a certificate of completion from me at the end. And so I commend it to everyone. It's of that's course great. entirely free. I think that's crucial. I think that if there's one thing that we've noticed needs to happen is that we as citizens need to know that we've got to stand on guard. We, we have to literally, we can't expect our kids and the generations ahead of us uh, to enjoy the freedoms we have if we don't stand on guard. And like I had said earlier, like 
we have to speak up. Citizens are required to speak up. Don't you think? Shouldn't there be almost from all of us a more assertive uh, involvement with speaking up? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, each of us is a citizen and all of us have a responsibility to protect the freedoms we've been blessed with. I'll give another plug for a project that is dear to my heart because it's the history of my involvement with Canadian Constitution Foundation is the Runnymede Society, which is our law student membership group we have. And I I started it in 2016 and spent uh, a year flying around the country, meeting with law students, talking to them, setting up chapters, hosting debates. Uh, The society does extraordinary work. So if you are a law student or interested in going to law school, check out runnymedesociety.ca. We have conferences, we have debates, we have events, and we really focus on bringing back not just awareness of rights, but the sort of the culture of open and free debate. Okay, I love that because one of my complaints has been in the last couple of years is that we used to be able to watch television programs where an expert who has this belief um, begins to debate an expert that has that belief, and you got this, and they respected each other. They would shake hands on these shows and and have a cup of coffee, and then they would just wade in, to, and it was just so enjoyable, and you would learn so much by these minds. So if you've got debates happening in a forum to make that happen, I think we literally need to see this come back to Canada and get into uh, uh, onto our, t- our television channels. Yeah, and students love it. They love, you know, their favorite is they'll will bring in somebody to debate their favorite constitutional law profs. So there's almost like a gladiator a- aspect to it. It's so much more engaging. So from what I've seen, the young people, the future lawyers, the future judges, um, they really have a thirst for this, for the rough and tumble exchange of ideas. Yes. Yeah, I think everybody is, uh, you know, regardless of their political persuasion, wants to never be censored. They want the truth, the whole truth. They don't want to be, you know, just keep your head down and someone's going to look after you. That seems to really be eroding. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad for that. So in the last few minutes, uh, Joanna, just a few thoughts towards citizens, towards those across Canada. Um, what should we be doing? What, what do you think is going to be happening in the near future? Well, we've been blessed with an extraordinary, you know, lot as Canadians. We live in a beautiful, vast country with vast natural resources, um, with a culture of tolerance, openness, diversity. All of this is wonderful, but we shouldn't forget that the sort of bedrock constitutional culture of equality of everyone before the law, of respect for individual rights, of free speech, rights to free worship, free assembly, free association, we shouldn't sort of become complacent. And remember that without those bedrock protections, we wouldn't be able to enjoy all of the others or the rest of the bounty that we enjoy as Canadian citizens. Um, and so we, we have to, you know, and this is, I do believe, an individual responsibility of every Canadian. We build a culture of liberty um, by informing ourselves and educating ourselves about our liberties and our rights. Well, I want to say thank you so much for being someone who really is the watchman on the wall. And I want to encourage everybody listening uh, to support you, to be able to mount 
a court case. It's expensive. It requires people and, and the amount of work involved. So thank you for doing that. And uh, as we say goodbye, I want to encourage everybody to, to give. This is a smart place to give. It's a great place to protect our nation as well. So thank you so much, Joanna. Thank you, Leon. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.